being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong so we're getting into a low city so now it's still the fall of 93 it's october McVeigh gets um, a traffic ticket four miles from Elohim City. <laughs> you don't know. So, and in a the uh, that angle of the Oklahoma bombing city stuff, it's like that's when this larger plot happens where members of a racist bank robber group called the Aryan Republican Army, residents of Elohim City, including Strassmeyer, um, start forming these cells, each which with a different purpose, with the end goal of blowing up the, the federal building. Um, and McVeigh, it has association with these bank robbers in this story. McVeigh publicly would always deny this, but at the very end, or prior to his execution, and this is not, again, I don't know why, but this is not in his biography, but in, it is in the notes, in the transcripts of his biographer's conversation, where at the end, McVeigh does say, like, okay, yeah, I participated in, in a couple bank robberies, but I don't want to talk <laughs> about it. So, yeah, and, yeah, like, he says that. What was, what was that phrase your professor said, that they were, like, transcribers of McVeigh? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, my, yeah, the chair of my, yeah, he... He, he had no uh, great love. I I mean, you know, I don't want to cause any beefs, but uh, he he called them basically like that book is worthless. All they were, were transcribers, and and it's true because if you read it, and then you but you also have the um what the, their transcripts of their conversation. They definitely yeah they told the story McVeigh wanted told. Period. The end. And things like that, him saying like, okay, off the record, I did participate, but I don't want that in the book. They're like, okay. I mean, what is a few bank robberies among friends, right? I mean, <laughs> whomst among us. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, because of all this stuff, like because of the that bank robbery stuff, like at that point, I started to get really into heist movies. I mean, just oh. trying to. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. I actually had to refrain from telling you about a new series that I have already made. Oh wow! Really? So he basically he basically did a bunch of shit that like Oliphant was like looking at doing, but like this guy was actually legit, hey. so he did it. <laughs> Super cool stuff. Holy shit! What? That's like one you're working on. Yeah, I already did it, it uh, but it's not released yet. Oh my god! I'm all about heist movies too. I was watching that Hell and High Water. Like, Heat is like my favorite movie, basically. So, like, I'm all about this. Ugh. Also, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, you know, like, I don't know that before I started Oklahoma City bombing stuff. I think it would have been like a maybe of interest, but not something I would. Mm-hmm. just like like just be like i want to just immer- like consume anything having to do with any kind of a heist but at one point like i'm in my course arc this is still during my master's i took a criminology class not to be a not to be a cop uh mm-hmm. 
oh, this class is ridiculous. But but I took it because there's a unit on bank robbery, and I'm mm. just like, and that was helpful to me because it that that's really all I got out of that class. <laughs> but it was like the stages of a bank robbery, the surveillance, mm. you know, crowd control, like how you you know the <laughs> bank robber, someone has to control the crowd, someone has to be the getaway driver, like that kind of broke it down. Unfortunately, like. I think I got the highest grade in the class. Everyone else in that class was either military or a wannabe cop. Like, and then there's me, and I'm just like, oh, cool, hold on. But um, but that class just on the side, it was funny because like this other unit was about gang warfare, and somehow <laughs> the professor decided that the movie Warriors was oh a good. Yeah, we had to watch it, and then the most cartoonish out. movie ever. <laughs> I don't know how I. I mean, maybe he was just like that's all these other meatheads could handle or whatever. Like, I don't know, but that was really weird. Yeah, warriors as if you're gonna see like gang warfare with like guys <laughs> with sparkly shorts or something. <laughs> A bunch of mimes running through New York. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, I'll look out for that. You know, like uh, that was weird. But he was a nice <laughs> professor. It was just a little out of touch with stuff. But anyways, I took that just for bank robberies. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Every every like because so these ARA bank robbers or they robbed I have the number here and I used to know it off the top of my head, but I mean it was something like twenty three something like many 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 successful bank robberies in the course of less i think than two years and in the commission of that nobody got hurt which takes it really does that would take a great skill and planning um because but they did they did not to praise them because the whole goal was to initiate a race war but as far as just bank robbers go <laughs> they did funny things like dress up as santa claus sometimes they dressed up as fbi or atf agents like that's pretty funny that, yeah um one time one of them like leaves a they would leave a dummy bomb behind but they were not operative bombs they would leave one behind to kind of stave off uh, yeah, I guess the, just buy some time or something. Yeah, to buy some time, and like you know, he like leaves one, and he's one of the guys, and he's running out, and he's like, "Thank you very much." Like, I, just like weird. They had this <laughs> little flare that they they also used dead president masks, by the way. Which interesting. Yeah. So we're talking like different presidents from history. Yeah, yeah, like Nixon and Reagan oh, okay. masks, That's which I have. Funny. I now I have a, co a small collection of those because of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to recall. Was there something about them sometimes speaking Spanish or Arabic, or it was a confusing that was something? Yeah, else? no, no, no. Yep that that's them. Uh, the two older members did. Like they would, some, yes, they would sometimes try to pass them off as either Spanish, set themselves off as either Spanish or like Arabic. They didn't speak Arabic. The one spoke Spanish. Um, they, but yeah, they would use that in like trying to confuse, you know, they were also, they were really, really, not only did they use like funny costumes, but they were also good at disguises. Um, mm. Uh, which is also like a skill unto itself, but 
and it also enters the world of like false flags in a certain sense i mean like yeah 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 totally like undermines the whole like the arabs did oklahoma city right <laughs> a lot of people will say like some of those john doe 2 sightings where he he's like are are really actually decoys mm-hmm. like disguises um but another interesting thing is like one of the leading members like there's two older ones or one of them um was a secret service informant that had <laughs> that had gone rogue but actually he was born in vietnam his father was cia Mm-hmm. he watched the very first personally as a boy the first immolation you know of a buddhist monk in protest to the war as a little kid oh dang he ended up becoming prior even before bradley chelsea manning um was the first federal prisoner to undergo uh gender reassignment hormone therapy oh interesting because as this person is uh, robbing banks to fund a racer. They have, they have because there's double everything here. They have a double life in another city where they live as a woman with a woman who's living as a man. I I I don't want to offend with the gender terms here. Um, these are the terms that are being used in the mid '90s. So, right for sure. Yeah. I, yeah, living another life in a, in another city that his like uh, Nazi friends, bank robber associates know nothing about. Like, would have literally killed him, them for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Let's keep the motor running. This won't take very long. By the time the police get here, we'll be already gone.
Yeah, so I'm just trying to think. It seems like there's a couple more things. But a, a very good case of, has been made that like all of the that this is very relevant to the actual bombing plot itself. And I'll leave it up to some of the nuts and bolts people to flesh it out. Or there's one book called In Bad Company that starts to flesh it out. It's it's more like an ethnographic look at, at at this bank robbery gang, but it gives some good, at least background information on them. My personal opinion is that it stops very short of where it needs to go. Mm. But it does give some good background information on this bank robbery gang. So it you you know it might be might you might like to read it because it does it is interesting. It's just that it stops short. Uh, but what this guy does, he was a professor professor of criminology. I want to say Indiana State, but he overlaid McVeigh's movements on the bank robber gang, and it's just so uncanny. There's just no way. Uh, but but again, like I said, and this he didn't know this, but like McVeigh himself says, like yeah, I rob banks, but just don't tell anybody. <laughs> oh, and by the way, the FBI for some reason destroyed the surveillance tapes of the ARA bank robberies, just as like uh, the criminal trials were going on. So there there may have been tapes that did show McVeigh participating, <laughs> but oops. Those are destroyed. Another bumbling FBI, right? Right. It's funny how they, they lose more stuff than I do. It's crazy. <laughs> like, there's also, and I'm not going to go too far into it, but there's more informants in this plot. It's not just like one informant that went rogue from being a Secret Service informant. It's there's that there's more informants embedded in this plot. So, mm-hmm. That's like that's a whole that's a whole other show. And I actually <laughs> there's probably other people that would be better and more interesting to talk to about it. Um but uh let's see. Doubtful on your assessment, but I, I know I hear what you're saying. <laughs> Up until about two years after Aberration came out, I still could have recited everything in my sleep and had it back and forth, you know, like no question. I could have just like spouted it all out and and in the interim I have made room for other things in my head and like this you know also the whole book all of it every things that came in the next two years after it were so traumatic for me that I kind of like pushed a lot out of my Mm head Uh, and every it seems like every time I try to pick some of that stuff up, like I, I get hampered somehow. But anyways, you know, by myself and other people. So at this point, McVeigh is sending letters to his sister, um, continuing to talk about his undercover mission. Now, someone actually I was engaging with, I think really this last yesterday. All the days are blending, but um, they say, well, it looks like some of these letters are just cover stories. And while that might, might be true, the larger, when you take everything together, it's it's not as easy to pass off that way. Yeah. Which I don't know if I've made the case verbally here. I believe it's at least in my, you know, it's made in my book. So he's going on and on. 
he actually even mentioned actually he mentions bank robbers to his sister in one of these letters like how bank robbery isn't bad <laughs> um just <laughs> funny imagine though how easy and like you can't do it now you, you, like bank robbery just does not work the same way but back then in the early 90s or before how easy like so the one guy actually back to the bank robbery is the one guy at the time his name was peter lang uh, their name is now donna but anyways they pioneer like they they used the john dillinger method of hopping the counter like they, mm. they had so much like pizzazz to these bank robbers they were really they were also spectacles um you're just like this yeah. crew is good <laughs> yeah and i don't mean to be like i yeah, like yeah. why you know just it's just the the skill you have to tip your hat i don't know yeah but also i don't on the other hand like it, it was a lot easier probably to rob banks than you know so yeah even as late as israel keys so like what like the aughts like he was robbing like banks that didn't have like good security like fairly recently like turns out Wait, like <laughs> robbing banks is like easier than most people think no do not cut this out of context <laughs> maybe right, i might well, cut that myself <laughs> i have i i'm never gonna rob a bank okay <laughs> Sure. I have no plans, nor nor have I ever robbed it. I just find it <laughs> fascinating. Just the, the tactical elements of what it takes to do it. Mm-hmm. Somehow it's infinitely fascinating and exciting. So, okay, here's a, this is interesting. All right, so mm-hmm. where, where are we now? We are in early, like around February, February 94. Um, McVeigh is back in Kingman, Arizona, and uh, works at a security company there, and um, is making a bunch of friends, including a uh, member, <laughs> and, and actually is living just yards away, and I've been to this property, just yards away from another member, a former member of the Arizona Patriots, who's also a ranking member of the National Alliance, when when Bay's living, like, just yards away from him that's the person i said was one of the scariest motherfuckers i have ever encountered um i mm. was there with a form i was there <laughs> i am so bad i just showed up at his door like like much like a mormon <laughs> on a mission yeah and and uh you know he i never seen someone's i've seen a lot of scary people looked in a lot of scary people's eyes this guy had murder in his eyes and even mm. my my friend that was with me at the time a former marine i've never seen my friend or my <laughs> was my friend i've never seen him scared like we've been in a lot of bad situations weird scary situations never saw him show fear he was fucking scared of this guy but anyways mcbay's just living like really close to him just yards away I was later told that if I ever showed up at his property again, I, I would be shot. So, mm. so that's cool. So like, I probably won't visit again, but who knows. <laughs> As McVeigh's living in this house next to this Arizona Patriot member, later a guy would claim that he lived there with McVeigh and that they were the uh, subjects of mind control. <laughs> 
yeah, they regularly attended together a disabled veterans group in Kingman. And uh, and this guy would, and this guy says they were using him and McVeigh as guinea pigs. And I can't find evidence that this guy lived with McVeigh, although I have seen that he did live at that property um, like later. So that's just a, a creepy thing. But the reason I guess I, that's interesting is because it is at the same time that what I call a number of alternate or double McVeigh's appearing Kingman, um, and then also in other locations in an increasing frequency. Um, a guy named Bob Reagan, Ragan, um, who owned a trailer park that McVeigh lived in, at one point tells the New York Times that McVeigh was an ideal tenant, but then in another article describes him as an arrogant loner who always wore fatigues, played loud music, threw beer cans, and had a pregnant girlfriend. Now, this is really interesting. Mm. McVeigh's sexuality is like a, is a whole other black hole, but like the whole thing about the pregnant girlfriend is that it's not just one person that might have been mistaken. A guy that McVeigh works with at state security at that same time said this, that McVeigh had been fired, and by the way, McVeigh was involved in an underage girl, and then there's his supervisor at a warehouse distribution center also tells the FBI McVeigh was a creep mm. and was hanging hanging out with an underage girl who was six to eight months pregnant. And then, you know, so McVeigh's being seen with this pregnant woman. Um, but then McVeigh goes to Vegas and fills out an application for a job a job at Loomis Armored Car Company and on the application McVeigh says he's trying to explain why he has credit card debt and he says um, that his girlfriend ran ran up the credit card debt McVeigh actually has issued a psych exam to get this job and he doesn't get the job <laughs> I, I must assume something happen on the psych exam because otherwise he would be qualified now at the same time uh, on the topic of McVeigh's pot or some McVeigh characters lovers I, I had been um, pulling out these documents I was the only person yet to have ever gone through like 500 boxes of McVeigh's documents and um, there's one I pull out by a guy named Richard <laughs> Rogers in the Kingman area. And this is actually an ATF report. And he says he met McVeigh because McVeigh was hitchhiking around the Kingman area. And he became acquainted with McVeigh for, for about a year and a half. And they had several sexual encounters. Um, but while the veracity of this story, he could just be a kook is unknown. The FBI and the ATF continue to go back and interview him. Um, and what's very strange here, I'm just going to read. This isn't an end note. I guess I'm giving it away now. But I kind of put this <laughs> Easter egg in the book. Yeah. I don't know why. But it's just... So Rogers told the FBI that McVeigh offered him $5 to drive him back into town. But as Rogers felt, quote, a little horny at the time, he informed... Um, his passenger that he wanted to have casual sex with him. McVeigh was agreeable to this plan. So they checked into a nearby motel. 
Um, this is again all according to this this guy, uh, Rogers. Perhaps because the story was just that interesting, the ATF and FBI kept coming back to take further statements, all of which contained strange details, like the time Rogers discussed his and McVeigh's sexual relationship with Rick Corvette, whoever that is. Rick perhaps Corvette. one of <laughs> yeah, and there's no follow-up on who. What the fuck? What is a Rick Corvette? That's the guy's <laughs> some guy's name. Um, I mean, it all sounds like really just lurid and sounds like almost like fan fiction, except like, well, except for that at this time, there are McVeigh's roaming around doing strange, you know, uncharacteristic, I guess, things in perhaps one of the strangest law enforcement reports ever written or that I've ever seen. The ATF noted that according to Rogers, McVeigh, quote, like to suck nice dick and suck nice balls. Nice. <laughs> yeah, but what beyond the name of the individuals, which are usually capitalized in law enforcement reports, like in all caps, the only other words to appear it that way in the report are dick and balls. They're capitalized. <laughs> I don't. So I refer to this as the dick and balls report. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. It, it makes me happy. <laughs> now, let me ask you, speaking generally. Yeah. Prior to this era of McVeigh's life, was there any indication that he was bisexual and or gay prior to this era of his life? <sighs> if this is even true, of course, right? If that's true, except for that, this Rogers guy in later reports does like is issued a polygraph the results of which are unknown but they they did they were also they actually were going to subpoena him he was going to have to testify at the grand jury like that's how Mm. much they put some kind of weight into the story something was up there uh on the topic of McVeigh's sexuality he had uh he he had a penchant for older women and he had a big penchant for the wives of his friends, including yeah. Perry Nichols and Michael Fortier. If we're talking about like uh like gay stuff, some of his letters in the army are quite homoerotic. And yeah, I guess I would I can't say that there's anyone but this Rogers guy to 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 say that. I wouldn't rule it out. I don't think, first of all, I think maybe, maybe he liked to have sex with women. I don't think he liked women at all, at all. Like, very misogynist. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he definitely was drawn towards other men. So I, I don't know. Um, there's, David Paul Hammer later claims that McVeigh liked to sniff under other men's underwear, but that's in David Paul Hammer's second book, which none of which, for reasons I can explain later, I, I would discount. I would, if you're going to read David Paul Hammer's first book, that, that, I'll just tell you the David Paul Hammer story. All right. Um, I had read his first book. He has two, and I mm-hmm. get the titles mixed up. One secret worth dying for, and one is um, deadly secrets. But the first book, I I read 
as I was pulling up these documents about McVeigh, like I was in those archives and, and getting documents and I was like, holy shit, some of this stuff, there's no way that uh, David Paul Hammer could, could know some of this stuff. For instance, David Paul Hammer claims that McVeigh told him that the actual bomb was built in a warehouse in Oklahoma City. I pull up a document and it says, and it's McVeigh, and he's being asked about the whereabouts of the truck on the two nights, you know, the two nights leading to the bombing and where the bomb was actually built. Because by this point, the defense, like amongst themselves, are like, he, he, it wasn't built in Kansas by him and Nichols. McVeigh says, I don't know, maybe it was in a government warehouse being loaded with explosives. And when McVeigh is arrested, he has on him a receipt for a, a warehouse in Oklahoma City, which has nothing <laughs> ever came of this. Like, um, And so there was a few instances of this where like David Paul Hammer in his first book would say things that only McVeigh, I believe, could have told him. And I was young and like eager and like really didn't wasn't as cynical or guarded of people as I came to be later. I was very trusting and I was like, oh my God. So I wrote to David Paul Hammer and I was like, hey, David Paul Hammer, check this out. And I sent him the documents. I was like, these support what you're saying in your book. And um, so David Paul Hammer and I corresponded for a while and I was in classwork and I would, every paper I had to write for school, I would try to spin it into my ongoing research. The only reason I was, this sucks to say, but in school was so that I could tune this research. Like it gave me, you know, it, it facilitated this. So I would have been doing it one way or another, but this facilitated it. So, so I, so I would be writing papers for school. And like, every time I would one out, I would send it to David Paul Hammer, like, Hey, you know, he's kind of like my pen pal. We, I wouldn't say we weren't close, but you know, we had a correspondence. So David Paul Hammer comes out with a second book. And all of a sudden in the second book, first of all, there's details. It's, that aren't in the first book that are like now it's clear he's taken them right out of the documents um mm -hmm. like you know and then and, and uh, a former research partner of mine he actually caught it first like he finished the second book before i could finish it and he was like oh you might want to look at this and there's like uh, i don't know about three pages that are plagiarized word for word right out of one of my school papers and like, <laughs> that's all like because my friend had read my paper and he reads it and he's like oh my god look now so David Paul Hammer also at some point starts a correspondence with one of the victim family members and this was a good friend of mine I I loved her um and she was old and she was lonely and she was traumatized and, and somehow you know she also would write to terry nichols but that did, wasn't weird what was weird was that david paul hammer tried to start a romantic kind of relationship with with this woman and uh when i saw that those few pages of my book had been plagiarized i i was like uh hey he he plagiarized this i'm just saying and she got really mad because 
Dude, Paul Hammer was kind of like grooming her, recording her, and mm. taking advantage taking advantage of her. So, so I, I wrote David Paul Hammer, and I was like, "Why the fuck did you like? Why why did you plagiarize me? You could at least give me credit." And he says, uh, "I put you in the thank you section." He goes, "If you continue <laughs> to accuse me of this, I will not only try you in a court of law; I will try you in the court of public opinion." And I just want to <laughs> say. That's funny coming from a guy that like took a whole hospital hostage that like has <laughs> murdered people that's on death row. Like really the I mean, I you could drag me through the mud, but I'm never gonna be a murderer or like <laughs> you know. So he David Paul Hammer also is one of his defenses in one of his many criminal trials claimed he had multiple personality disorder and the and one of the multiple personalities was a chimpanzee like <laughs> whatever dude like i i don't I, I, you know there's no fight here like okay whatever <laughs> but so that's why when i i i um say i would give credence to his first book because i saw personally that i mean there's just no way david paul hammer could have he did not he was on in prison he was not um pulling up documents mcveigh had to tell him some of this stuff um but the second book i would just personally i just throw it out but hmm, so that's interesting that's, that's a, now we've taken like a i've taken a whole other turn here but um oh <laughs> uh, so mcveigh shows up in texas around this time patcon operative matthews is instructed by his FBI handlers, who, by the way, like <laughs> their names, those FBI agents appear on documents in relation to the investigation. Like they go to question Jack Oliphant. It is, it, uh, it they are PatCon handlers, the FBI agents that are dispatched to question Oliphant about his relationship to McVeigh is also a a PetCon handler at the right during the same time, which I feel is a conflict <laughs> of interest, but okay. But uh, a, a PetCon operative named Bob Matthews instructed is instructed to attend paramilitary training camp in some Sabo, Texas. A highly redacted FBI PetCon report from 1991 describes a 160-acre ranch run by the Texas Light Militia a group known to be stockpiling weapons and explosives, um, particularly stolen military-grade C4. Um, FBI put several high-level undercover informants and agents in the Texas Light Militia um, and reported, and they reported that the Texas Light Militia planned to train people in the use of explosives for use of force against the U.S. government in the future. Texas Light Militia was also closely aligned with other organizations such as Aryan Nations, KKK, and Civil Material Assistance, <laughs> whom Roger Moore is paymaster for. Matthews later reported that while attending um, a Texas Light Militia training camp in 1994, he saw both McVeigh and Strassmeyer there. And by the way, during that session, they, there was instruction on how to convert Marine Corps issued flare guns into grenade launchers, the very thing that they have been looked at, you know, at a gun show 
not too yeah. long before for selling yeah and and the that like matthew's story is laid out a little bit in different parts of my book i think especially in the i think it was in the la in the epilogue the jesse section um but uh at, but at that same time info information provided by joe hurley an informant working for the secret service fbi atf and missouri state highway patrol led to the arrest of wyatt Dwayne wagoner in september 1994. wagoner planned to blow up a courthouse using an info truck bomb and a rocket launcher and had been involved in bank robberies um <laughs> after the to fund to fund those endeavor after the oklahoma city bombing hurley the informant like matthews said he had also met mcveigh at a paramilitary training camp attended by mercenaries uh so that's a one i don't know that i feel like that's important when we're talking about the bomb plot while it's not the nuts and bolts it's the context in which the nuts and bolts occur yeah oh uh, I just don't I'm gonna go I'm not gonna tell you everything because you don't you know I don't wanna anyone can read my book I want to generate interest in my book um, but I do anything that's like weird I think I should talk about um I mean there is the coal burn microchip situation um the ufology but I don't Going, going, going. Now Roger Moore gets robbed, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here's a weird one. Okay, here's a good one. All right, here we go. Okay, now we're in November 1994. Bill Maloney, a realtor in Carthage, Missouri, called the FBI after the bombing and told them an intriguing story. He says, um... On November 2, 1994, three men came into his office. One called Tim, who had called the month before and wanted to discuss a plot of lands, but and said, like, I'll be coming through. So Tim shows up, but Tim comes out with two other guys. One identifies himself as Nichols. The other identifies himself as Jacks. J-A-C-K-S. All... Uh, Maloney describes all three as having a confident military bearing, but says that Jax seems to be in charge of the group. Maloney, before uh, having this real estate office, had naval intelligence training and military recall. And as he spoke mm. with Tim McVeigh, as he or as he spoke with Tim, he notices a discolored tooth, like like that he thought was a filling. Um, but he was kind of like he saw it and he took note of it in his head um and later like much later the fbi takes mcveigh's writing sample and observes um, a discoloration on the same tooth that maloney independently said he saw um nothing came of this but during the conversation at the real estate office the men i said things that caused maloney to be suspicious they were just acting uh shady and Maloney um, hands the Jacks character a map to look at, and afterwards places it in a safe. And uh, this 
and later he gives it to the FBI because it has the fingerprints. The other employees, so it's not just one guy making this, like his whole outfit, like everyone in that office, other employees confirmed that these three men came in. They were driving a car with Arizona plates. Um, eight months after the Oklahoma City bombing, Malone, um, okay. About eight months after Maloney reported the incident, all of a sudden, a Dr. Michael Gellis, psychologist, Naval Criminal Investigative Service, NCIS, went with the FBI to Maloney's office to interview a witness and place her under hypnosis. Um, <laughs> she had been one of the receptionists there that day uh, when, when these three guys, Tim and the other two guys, show up. Gellis interviewed and placed her under, quote, a hip. This is an FBI document. Gellis interviewed her and placed her under a hypnotic trance. That's a quote that lasted over an hour. And under hypnosis, she provided, quote, new information, including the color, make, and model of the year of the vehicle and a partial plate number, which is amazing to me because it raises a couple of questions, one of which is <laughs> how many other witnesses were hypnotized? Why is this like the only, what, like how, how, how often does this occur? And also if hypnosis seemed to be able to like give them exact information, like why weren't more hypnotized? Like what, I mean, so, but if you look at Gellis's background, it's a lot of counterintelligence work. Um, and he actually later, like much after the bombing in the 2010s or 2008s, around, like he becomes uh, pretty infamous for his, I would, I would call it like new MK Ultra type stuff involved with like Gitmo. Mm -hmm. That's all in the book, Gellis. But like that, those three guys walking in there and, and them sending in a naval hypnotist. <laughs> but so there's more to that story because about three weeks after McVeigh's arrival in Kingman in February 1994, two drifters show up in Kingman right at the same time. 60-year-old guy named Robert Jacks and his companion, 35-year-old Gary Land. Lands and Jacks, using California driver's licenses, promptly rented a mailbox at the same Kingman mailbox room as McVeigh. And they closed that mailbox in that August, the same week McVeigh leaves town. Probably didn't miss them much because from November of that year until April 95, they rented three different rooms at or near motels McVeigh often stayed at at dates that coincide with his presence. Hmm. Early April 19, 1995, the morning of the bombing, they registered at a motel in Venita, Oklahoma, two hours northeast of Oklahoma City and two hours north of Elohim City, um, where they allegedly planned to seek refuge after the bombing, that Elohim City. That evening, the night of the bombing, about 10 hours after McVeigh's arrest, these two guys, Lands and Jacks, check out of the Vanita Motel, the one near nearish Oklahoma City, and for reasons that are very unexplained, rented a motel room in Perry, Oklahoma, where McVeigh is being held before he's <laughs> identified 
in connection with the bombing. They stay like about two hours at that motel and they quickly check out and head back to Vanita. So I, maybe the bed was uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> the FBI puts out an APB for them. And, uh, at, and the next day, a an, an FBI tactical squad arrests them at another motel in Carthage, Missouri, an hour away from Maloney's office. The, so, so at one point, FBI tells reporters that the trail of land and jacks provide the strongest lead yet in the search for the second suspect and wider circle of conspirators they believe to be responsible. Um, and they also tell the news that they strongly suspect that this land guy is John Doe too. Um, and witnesses in Kansas and Oklahoma come forward saying that they saw McVeigh with this guy. Both denied having ever known McVeigh. But 18 hours after their arrest, Lance and Jacks reportedly pass a polygraph and the FBI releases them and goes back to the media and says, the two men's uncanny parallel movements were just an unfortunate coincidence. <laughs> um, reporters caught up to Lands and Jacks after their release and see that they're driving a 1981 Thunderbird with Arizona plates, the same car the receptionist under hypnosis <laughs> saw at Maloney's office. Hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, so like the little clever line I say is uh in the book is if nothing else the bombing plot and its investigation could best be described as the most massive case of coincidences and mistaken identities ever
stuck around TV news and cameras There's choppers on the sky Marines, police, reporters out where, far and wide Bella yells, we're out of here Seen us is right on Making moves and starting grooves Before they knew we were gone Jumped into the Chevy Headed for big lights Wanna know the rest, hey By the rights, how bizarre How bizarre things that you're like you know is weird you know this doesn't square you still can't pin it that you can't like completely put it and make sense of it it's just it's just there it's just hanging there <laughs> in no- november 94 ed mcveigh which is McVeigh's, tim mcveigh's grandfather and the only person he ever publicly admitted to loving i can't imagine going my whole life i like not thinking i love any person like family friends or whatever yeah it's pretty sad yes and even he was close with his sister i don't think he once i've never seen him like claim love for his mother for his sister for his father but he loved his grandfather and would admit to that um and then november 94 his grandfather dies and uh and by the time they get word to mcveigh because he's really hard to get a hold of like he comes home to buffalo area but the funeral's already over and uh his childhood friend observes that tim had slowly deteriorated and now he was a paranoid person he was stranger and stranger he was very troubled his friends and family worried that he joined a cult um he kept a gun on him which wasn't unusual for him but like it was more intense he seemed ready to snap um mcveigh told his attorney as a while he was there, like kind of taking care of his grandpa's estate, he got an eerie, mysterious message found uh, like on his dead grandfather's answering machine. It was a woman's voice and it said, pick up the phone. This is Jesus Christ. You're coming to see me tomorrow. And mm. like McVeigh was extremely disturbed by this and never figured out like who would make that call. He also 
he stays in New York. And while he's in New York, in Buffalo, he is getting calls from credit card companies uh, um, hounding him about his debt. He tells his attorneys that he finally talked to one of the credit card reps and said he was feeling sick from Desert Storm. But because his credit card was issued by the Department of Defense, they eventually stopped bothering him. I don't know what that means. But that's <laughs> what he says. I does do they issue credit cards? Like Yeah, I mean, I know that there are like credit unions like and like I've heard of like that naval credit union or whatever, but like I don't know that like that is like a normal thing. Yeah, I don't like a that a normal veteran like you does anyone who's ever been in the middle? I don't know either. I yeah. guess I was like lax and in looking into it. I just I really doubt that they would stop bothering you if you racked up some credit card debt though. That's right. Oh, oh, you don't feel good? Oh, forget it. <laughs> so while he's there for like take like in the aftermath of his grandfather's funeral, he's back at home and his friend from high school. Which actually, he only had a couple of female that I would call "quote unquote" friends. Although he would also say he was just trying to get laid. But um, he talks to this girl from high school, and he's like, she says he's like visibly upset, and he tells her that he'd been called and asked to do some military training, and she didn't know who he was talking about, and he didn't elaborate. But what he did tell her was. I'll only be gone a couple of weeks, like a couple months at the most, and I'm coming home. And she never heard from him again. And when he saw his friend Steve, who he, he writes a lot of letters to, he, he says, like, hey, I'm, I'm heading out of town now. And they shook hands. And the last thing that they says to him is, I hope to see you in the next life. And that was the last time Steve saw him. And he also stops by <laughs> Hellspan. Um, and he talks to his old friend, who he used to hang out with that Calspan who was like on the on guard duty with him. And he's talking about Waco. And uh they starts talking about Calspan's relationship to undercover operations. And he asks this guy to give him photocopies of classified documents about Operation North Star, which is weird, right? And then the guy is like, Why are you here? Like, why did you even stop by? Because this <laughs> this guy doesn't love McVeigh. Uh, you know, so he's like, "Why are you even here?" Let me let me ask Wendy real quick. Like, was that guy still a security guard at Calspan? No, he wasn't working at. No, 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 he wasn't working at Calspan when I talked to him, which I believe it was in 2011. Or I guess I meant when uh, McVeigh talked to him. Yes, yes, he was. Yeah, he was. Yeah, because he he goes he actually goes to Calspan to talk to him. Interesting. I guess it had been a couple years. Maybe, maybe not, maybe like a year and a half or something. He, he had, okay. this guy told me that he kept writing, like McVeigh from the road, he, he would write everyone letters, but he would write this guy at Calspan and he, oh, he just was like fixated on Calspan. He was fixated on it, just, just like I became fixated on it, but, <laughs> but, but he was, and like, but he wanted this guy to get documents, but the guy's like, no. No way, dude. <laughs> yeah, he was he was he was funny. You know, he I wouldn't say that guy is nefarious. He was just like a dork. <laughs> yeah. He uh so Tim visits his old friend 
who was the receptionist, the one who, when he leaves town the first time, is like, I just have to go, I have to go. Um, the one that he, he became pretty close with at one point, but she said she had the impression he was living out of his car and she tried to ask him a number of questions about his life, but he kept diverting her questions. And shortly after he left, he writes her, and he tells her that people may change superficially, but not underneath. Remember that. Like, I guess, obviously, there's something more going on with, with McVeigh. <laughs> I don't think it, all of this, the preponderance of it, is explainable by he was involved in a bomb plot. He was involved in a bomb plot, but there's more going on here. Mm-hmm. I don't know, quickly, we're quickly approaching the day mm-hmm. yeah i think what also one of my one of the sections i like in the book is like mcveigh's uh attempts to contact johnny bangerter which i'm not gonna get into i'll just say like that bumps up against the oliphant more stuff mm-hmm. and it was it kind of like that opened the case up in a whole other way for me um but Bangerter is also like a, a lot in that second book because um, <laughs> there's a lot more stories. But uh, so he's on the road, takes off like after leaving New York and he writes to his sister about all these like health problems he's having. He also tells her that people are, are looking for him and to be wary of them. At this time, I talked to this guy. He was also a scary guy out in Kingman. He told me that McVeigh was very obviously being followed by a surveillance van, and again, they didn't try to hide what they were doing. Um, mm. He starts checking in and out of motel rooms, and the motel, the guests and managers remember him having a steady stream of visitors. At one point, he's like causing so much ruckus that they kick him out of a motel, or they they don't allow him to renew his registration. Um, at that point, somebody is placing obsessive phone calls from his hotel room to the Prescott, Arizona Veterans Medical Center. Then all his calls stop for a month. And he's using a calling card. So some of the calls are traceable, like on that phone call, on that card. But his calls stop. And this is the time period where there's reports of him meeting with a mysterious man at a Kingman diner named Ron. And the, and the waitress is tells tells the defense team they're they're asking about this like um can, can we ask you about McVeigh coming in with this guy Ron and the waitress says that she fears for her life but well, what she tells them is that this man was ex-military and claimed to be part of a seven-man group formed by the army trained to assassinate people in Vietnam uh, McVeigh to his defense team acknowledged that he knew that waitress and frequented that diner but for not the life of him recall who ron was um <laughs> anyways like the whole point of all of this in this section is that that McVeigh's making friends and he's got some friends in in the kingman area and uh pe- other people at this time are seeing reporting like strange things happening in the desert like uh, practice explosives and all of this it, very close to where Oliphant's property is so one like segue that I'm not gonna go too deep in here but one that is worth mentioning is that McVeigh 
had been out to Area 51 and that he had been out there a couple times. And uh, his he, he tells a lot of stories, different stories about why he's out there. But he actually had photographs. I have one of them of pictures he took at Area 51. <laughs> Throughout 1993 and 1994, there was a guy named Stephen Colburn. And this guy divided his time, but he was a highly trained chemist. And he worked at Cedar sinai Hospital in Beverly Hills, where he conducted DNA research. Um, and in 94, he was holed up in a trailer in Bullhead City, Arizona, which is pretty close to uh, Kingman. And he's raising, his neighbors are talking about him raising snakes. There's snakes crawling all over his trailer. And he's conducting, it sounds like maybe some kind of experiments, which just to me made me think of David Ferry. But um, <laughs> yeah. in 90, July 94, Colburn is pulled over 30 minutes from Los Angeles. And he, and he just like starts acting belligerently. And his car is searched and they find loaded firearms, a silencer, a video camera with VHS tape showing a 50 cal Browning machine gun on his living room floor, like this tape of a machine gun on his living room floor, Colburn narrating assembly instructions. Um, they also found a bill of storage or a bill for a storage unit in Bullhead City that was issued the month before, the same month that McVeigh is living just minutes from there. Just a coincidence. <laughs> After July 94, like, or Colburn is arrested and he's released and he's given a summons to appear in court. But instead of showing up to court, Colburn decides he's going on the run and now he's a federal fugitive. And uh, he, he mails like his resignation into the, to the DNA lab and a letter to his girlfriends saying like, I gotta go. But, Actually, Colburn doesn't mail it himself. He has Roger Moore's mistress mail it for him. So now Colburn is like holed up in caves <laughs> in the desert. And uh, on April 14th, 1995, four days before the Oklahoma City bombing, the U.S. Marshals are in Kingman looking for Col fugitive Colburn. And they questioned the manager of that post office I've been talking about where everyone had a box. And she says that um, Colburn came in occasionally in March and April of 95 to pick up mail for Tim McVeigh. Um, so they, they had, I mean, this is what she told them before the bombing even happened. Um, so soon. After after Oklahoma City bombing, the manhunt for Colburn intensified. Like now, like he, there's an unknown or suspected association, and so the manhunt intensifies. Um, and they they search his trailer in Bullhead City, and they find bags of ammonium nitrate inside a truck in the backyard. Um, it took about one week, but they finally locate him in Oatman, which is 20 minutes from Kingman. Colburn was working as a dishwasher at a local restaurant, but the staff there tells them that, or his boss tells the FBI that three weeks before the bombing, Colburn took off and he didn't come back until the weekend after. 
authorities learned that he resided in a trailer with at least two other men who, and they were all operating, according to authorities, a crystal meth lab. <laughs> uh, Colburn is finally arrested in May 1995. He's, he's 35 years old. Uh, and he says, like, I don't, I don't know, McVeigh. And then he, and then finally, he, I guess he realizes like his alibi is really shaky for the, the day of the bombing. And so he asks for a deal and signs a proffer letter issued by U.S. attorneys. And I want to say Janet, Janet Reno is like one of the people that approves this. Mm. So as it turns out, Moore, who Colburn was a customer of, at one point, had said to Colburn, you need a, you, you really need to meet my friend, uh, Tim Tuttle. He leads a group of hardcore guys out in Kingman. He's a, this is according, <laughs> he says, this guy, Tim Tuttle, he's a former member of special forces who has been quote, overtrained. <laughs> and he tells Colburn that Tuttle is very restless and he travels frequently um, and regularly camps out like in the mountains in the desert. And then he gives more McVeigh's, McVeigh's contact info. And, uh, and so the cover, so the, the cover story here is that they tried to hook up, like, like, but they, they kept, it was like ships in the night. They just kept, oops, missing each other. And, you know, and never did. But this does not explain why Colburn would have been checking the mailbox and that guy i talked about the indiana state criminologist mark ham who wrote the book about the bank robbers he puts forth he he firmly believes that colburn was one of the bomb makers um there there's a lot but i'm not even trying to talk about how a bomb was built like what's really interesting here is is that later as i, I think as i was reading my dissertation i find Colburn um I find Colburn and uh he's a speaker at MUFON's 2010 National Symposium <laughs> in Irvine, California. <laughs> oh geez, all those freaking desert rat meth UFO scientists are oh, so shit. freaking weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Oh my goodness there's like some weird stories i was told in came that were just like off the wall like basically i would go check into a motel same ones that mcveigh stayed at because i had to get a feel like i wanted to get a feel for everything and uh like one of them this woman she was really nice like she was super nice but she would tell me about underground tunnels with aliens in them out there <laughs> like it, it was really weird you know but she was so nice but uh yeah the desert um so yeah, so so Colburn shows up at MUFON's 2010 National Symposium <laughs> with other big names, George Filer and Stanton Freeman. And, and like if you haven't read, I would suggest Miragement and Project Beta. Both of those go into the um UFO disinfo mm -hmm. stuff. But the only reason I end up going into that in my book was because of because I find Stephen Colburn at MUFON, and like I said, that sent me off on this whole exploration. So he's there presenting a paper on the analysis report on metal samples from 1947 UFO 
crash on plains of San Augustine, New Mexico. He then um, later that year appears on coast, <laughs> coast to coast, of course, and his area expertise is not metal samples from 40s spacecraft. Now his expertise is alien implants. <laughs> he claims to be a nanotechnology specialist with 20 years of experience. And by the way, he, I mean, he was a highly trained chemist, but yeah, now he's an alien ex- implant guy. So he starts working with Roger Lear, um, analyzing samples of alleged alien implants. And they claim to have removed infl- implants from patients um, who themselves claim to be alien abductees. And it goes on and on like this, this whole alien angle. But Colburn says he didn't know who put the implants in the non-consenting human bodies and speculated they were used to transmit sensory and physiological information um, what the subject is seeing and hearing. Of 17 implants Lear and Colburn allegedly found, only one was identifiable as having... (laughs) earthly origins, while the other might be extremely advanced electronic communication devices, which are relating info to someone somewhere. This is what Colburn is saying. Yeah. Colburn says, likely an alien civilization. Oh, yeah, naturally. (laughs) Of course. That's the simplest explanation. After Coast to Coast, Colburn starts generating quite a following um, among the alien abductee circles and making regular appearances on the UFO abductee circuits. For a fee, Colburn would um, use sophisticated equipment consisting of a metal detector to scan for hidden implants and, and then attempt to determine if the person was actually a hybrid infused with alien DNA. <laughs> I mean, this case really this case goes off into so many freaking weird uh, roads. But so, twenty years had passed since the Oklahoma City bombing had not tempered his earthly political and racial concerns. As seen in a rant he orated on a two-hour podcast in July 2015, in between outbursts about government scumbags intent on enslaving humanity and his ex-wife his commie (laughs) ex-wife and her commie family who he believed were planted who were plants said he wasn't really concerned with race per se but about clashes of culture and those arab quote-unquote ragheads destroying the united states so (laughs) so yeah (laughs) Amazing. I don't know. Anyone who hasn't read my book, I, I feel like is going to find that interesting if they can even follow what I'm saying. Uh, but, you know, anyone who has is probably going to be like, we already know that. You have just finished listening to an episode of Program to Chill, where I interviewed Wendy Painting. If you're listening to this, please consider donating to Wendy's coffee. What is a coffee? It's like a GoFundMe, but spelled differently. For the cost of a cup of coffee, or more if you're so inclined, you can help Wendy continue her research so we can get that second book out sooner. You can find that link in the show notes. 
please support independent researchers like Wendy. And if you're listening to this on the free side, you can subscribe to my Patreon to hear these Wendy Painting interview episodes sooner than the weekly release date, as well as a whole back catalog of interesting content to make your chores easier or to make your shitty job more tolerable. Guaranteed. Thank you, God bless. My guns and ammunition Do very different things If you're looking for tradition I'm castling my king Take my body